everybody. Welcome back to the ninth episode of the Scared to Death podcast. And uh, today, fresh off the existential psychology pre-conference, we have Dr. Mark Landau, a professor from the University of Kansas and one of the leading scholars in social psychology and especially terror management theory. Uh, Dr. Landau, would you mind introducing yourself to the audience? Uh, hi, Peter. Uh, you can call me Mark. Um, and I'm honored to be on the Scared to Death podcast. Uh, I'm a professor in the psychology department at the University of Kansas, and I've been here since 2007. And uh, one fun fact about me is I'm the only terror management researcher to work with all three of the founding members of terror management theory. I did my undergraduate with Sheldon Solomon, and I did my master's with Tom Pazinski, and I did my doctorate with Jeff Greenberg. And uh, each of them over the years imposed a unique brand of trauma on me. And that's why today I struggle with basic psychosocial functioning. Wow, that's <laughs> that's really cool. I didn't know you had all had experience with all three of them. Yeah. Um, well, so for our first question, I just wanted to ask, how did you uh, enjoy the conference this year? I knew you, I saw you were an organizer. So how was also doing that? Yeah, I was just extremely gratified to see how intellectually diverse the existential pre-conference has become. Um, when Ken Vale and, and Lindsay and I started it a few years ago, we worried that it might be too insular. As you know, terror management theory is among the most prominent perspectives in existential psych, and terror management researchers tend to be a tightly knit group. So we kind of worried that the pre-conference would be like an echo chamber with the same familiar voices bouncing off each other. But with each year, we're just seeing the intellectual boundaries of the pre-conference get wider and wider and just expanding to encompass a spectrum of researchers and disciplines and research questions and ideas. And um, that diversification is not surprising if like me, you believe that existential ideas inform pretty much every aspect of life, but it certainly is gratifying to see the pre-conference grow in just a few short years uh, to become so diverse and, and so rich. Did you have any uh, standout moments from this year that really like shocked you or took you by surprise? No, there was no single standout moment, um, but it just was overall very gratifying uh, just to see uh, just how how many different voices were coming in from um, outside of the standard terror management theory crew. Mm -hmm. so really nice. And uh, I remember hearing that you were one of the people at the original conference back in back in the day. So I wanted to see like oh, how would you have one conference. Sorry. Which one? The two thousand one conference in Amsterdam. I I, I believe yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. Um. So how would you sort of compare like that to? how what you experienced uh, just recently last week well that's an interesting question um that was a very exciting conference um but i was a, a younger person at the time and um had been toiling away in in my little windowless office so for me to go to another country and be surrounded by some of the world's most prestigious researchers discussing existential questions was pretty mind-blowing but if i try to be somewhat objective and and compare the two events um I think that that conference was uh, somewhat stuck with kind of the same voices, you know, white men doing kind of standard research within the standard tradition. Um, and now uh, we just have uh, folks from clinical, we have folks from personality psych, um, we have people looking at all sorts of other existential issues. Um, and also just the fact that we know that this is a recurring thing makes it also exciting. 
because it challenges us to come up with new themes each year to find ways of maintaining the integrity of the overall existential umbrella while keeping it fresh from year to year. So I think it's um, exciting and challenging, but yeah, that, that 2001 conference was, was, was clearly uh, unique and, and, and very exciting. So I've also heard um, a lot about your involvement with ICEP. And for those that don't know, that's the uh, International Society for the Science of Existential Psychology. And they're also, uh, I think, one of the main contributors to the conference, correct? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the the pre-conference started independently of ICEP, but uh, now that ICEP has launched officially, it's become sort of the main um, sort of force behind it. Just like the Society for Self and Identity lies behind the um, Self and Identity pre-conference. Um, so so I wanted to ask with the launch of ICEP you mentioned, uh, how did exactly did uh, ICEP uh, come about? Well, I think the need for some type of society was becoming more and more apparent over the past uh, seven or eight years or so. Um, and I think that's because of the convergence of a few streams. One is that terror management research is just deep and it's just gotten more and more um, entrenched in the field. And another is that terror management theory was spreading to other disciplines. As I mentioned, it was starting to be recognized for um, its application to clinical issues and real world problems like political polarization. But third and most important, was the proliferation of perspectives other than terror management theory that took inspiration from existential themes and existential ideas. So we've got Aaron Kay's work on compensatory control theory and Liz Pinnell's work on existential isolation, lots of new work on authenticity and freedom, lots of work on meaning and life and growth. So there's just so much great work from across different corners of the field uh, that was related to the core themes highlighted in existential philosophy. And I think everyone was kind of aware of those developments and those are sort of the distal roots of the society, but the proximal cause was uh, Ken Vale pushing it really, um, taking the time um, to, to really mobilize it. I mean, a society was something that I used to talk with my former mentor, Jeff Greenberg about back in 2003, I used to, kind of half jokingly talk about it. And the success of that 2001 conference that you just mentioned in Amsterdam really made it seem like a viable thing, but no one was willing to do the legwork and get started and, until Ken started giving Lindsay and me orders. And uh, that's when things really got going. But, but um, it's definitely time to, to have that society. Yeah, um, so what, do, you know, do you remember when uh, the society was first founded? Well, I can, I remember having lots of conversations with um, Ken and, and Jeff Greenberg and Daniel Sullivan about it and Lindsay. Um, and I remember those conversations when I was walking to the bus and I took the bus in 2019. So it must've been around 2019, we were thinking about getting it going. And uh, like I said, the idea was always in the air, but I don't think anyone really wanted to take the time to do the, the busy work, but Ken and Lindsay and I, you know, finally found the initiative and made it happen. You know, we cleared it with IRS and the banks and, you know, it's a real society now. So it's exciting. Yeah. Uh, how do you see ICEP uh, growing in the future? So I know this is like pretty like early on, um, like what, what do you expect to see in like the next five to 10 years? 
Yeah. Um, well, you know, we spend a lot of time defining our purpose and our official statement can be found on the website, but essentially ISEP is a way to organize and promote research and applied work um, in advocacy and in, in the work of, of existential psych. And, you know, our thinking was that existential ideas were always on the periphery of social psychology. They were always kind of in the margins of mainstream social psych. Um, a lot of researchers just dismiss them as untestable, just the kind of topics philosophers speculate about, but that's it. And we think that if the society's mere existence does anything, it signals that these ideas are front and center right now. It's, it's an invitation to everyone from beginning students like yourself to seasoned researchers that it's okay to examine some of these deep, dark existential dynamics and their role in everyday thought and feeling and behavior. Um, so that's, I think, the significance of the society as a noun, <laughs> just the mere existence of it uh, is, is basically a call to those individuals um, that, that this is a legitimate area of work. But the society is also very much a verb. It's a very much a, a, an act, a set of, of active steps that we're taking in active initiatives. We've gotten uh, pedagogical materials that are organized. Uh, we're showcasing theoretical and empirical developments through interviews and small articles. We're giving awards, we're giving grant money. Uh, we're trying to pose new questions and we also have ways to help people network uh, both within and outside their discipline. So as to your question of where I see the society going, I just hope it does more of what it's doing now. Um, and I think in that respect, it'll be doing a great service to the field to help inspire people to pursue exciting questions and address important topics. And also just feel a sense of belonging, uh, feel a sense that um, they're part of, of something bigger than themselves, which we also know from existential psychology is very important. I mean, if I had to point to one concrete thing for the future, um, it would be maybe putting like something like a, a, a unique journal together, just like the Society for Self and Identity has the uh, journal Self and Identity. Um, our society might put forward a, um, a journal dedicated to existentially inspired work. Um, but that's something, you know, Lindsay and Ken and I are talking about. And we're wondering whether that would actually be in line with the mission because we don't want to further marginalize or um, you know, romanticize existential work as something other. You know, we kind of want it to be mainstream. Mm -hmm. so. um, how would you, do you have any, or I, I, I want to ask like about the Ernest Becker Foundation and like if you have any like relationship to them and like sort of like how do you see ISEP and the foundation like working together in the future? Yeah, I mean, my my introduction to Ernest Becker Foundation was, was through Sheldon Solomon. He was my undergraduate mentor back at Skidmore College, and he's one of the biggest workhorses for the Ernest Becker Foundation. And I mean, at the time, I was so focused on Becker's work exclusively that um, I thought the EBF was a tremendous thing. And I, I wrote an article for the newsletter. It was my first publication ever. Um, and, I, and I think the EBF is, is doing extraordinary work um, you know at the same time I think that the the society that we're talking about the new society complements EBF in many ways um, builds on those strengths you know the society the EBF obviously focus on the work focuses on the work of, of Ernest Becker um, 
but one of their strengths is that they reach out to and synthesize work from across different disciplines, especially the humanities, which is something that ISEP doesn't really focus on. So looking at work in philosophy and anthropology and sociology and art, and, and they have entire um, newsletters on film criticism, et cetera. And so that's the kind of work that we need. ISEP's a little bit more focused on empirical work and empirical development, um, especially research that uses experimental methods to test existential ideas. So I think they both play a role. And if there's anything ISEP really needs to learn about from the EBF, it's it's longevity. Um, that EBF's been around for a long time and they've found innovative ways to maintain funding and maintain enthusiasm. And I hope the ISEP learns a lesson from them. And we've developed already really nice relationships with Lila Rothschild and other folks who work at the EBF um, to put together events for the pre-conference, social, like social hours. And um, so there's a lot of nice cross-germination cross going. But I do think ISEP fills a unique role and, and complements EBF in, in several ways. Awesome. Um, and uh, one more question about uh, ISEP is, uh, what's, what's it like being on the board of directors? Oh, it's fine. I mean, um, you know, Ken tells us what to do and, and we do it. Um, you know, it's exciting to make decisions about what we're doing and, and, and hash some of the stuff, some of the stuff out. Some of the stuff obviously is not very exciting, you know, trying to figure out web developer contracts and tax forms and stuff like that. But a lot of it is um, very exciting because it's an opportunity to work with some very smart people to make decisions about the, the purpose of the society and what, what roles it fills in, in the broader field and um, what kind of work we should be promoting, et cetera. So, um, but it's also just nice to work with a lot of like-minded folks that uh, share your values, but also disagree with you in many respects. So that's good. Awesome. So just uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, I want to ask you a little bit about your educational history and yeah. how you ended up at Kansas uh, University. Uh, so first, you mentioned earlier about uh, working with all three of the founders. Um, How did you end up uh, discovering and sort of just like following that path line? Yeah. Uh, so I was actually kind of a middling student as an undergrad. I was kind of getting, you know, low Bs. And I was, for my entire undergraduate career, I was vacillating between going into art and going into psychology. And I was always 50-50. And then um, the my advisors called me on the day the deadline where I had to um, make a call and, and declare my major and I picked psych and then it was just a couple of months later that I took a class with Sheldon Solomon and he called it personality but um, it was in that course that he talked about terror management theory and that course was the um, fulcrum uh, that just totally reoriented my trajectory so I, it was in that class that I fell in love with terror management theory and I just, it just felt right to me and I just felt a very deep kinship with the theory and the ideas. And um, after that, my entire relationship with academics changed. I started getting straight A's. I became much more invested. I felt a sense of ownership. Uh, I begged Sheldon to continue working on these ideas. And so I did an independent study and he just plopped nine big dusty books in front of me and said, don't talk to me until you've read all these, which is something I could never do today to my undergrads, but whatever. It was very, very empowering to, um, to be invited to step outside of that 
passive, typical traditional passive student role where you just go to lectures and record notes and regurgitate what you've learned on tests and to be an active learner and to actually be invited to uh, tackle the heavy thinkers um, face to face without any mediation of a textbook or a PowerPoint slide. And so those are very heady days when I was reading Otto Rock and um, other ideas related to that. And um, basically at the end of that semester and the end of that independent study, I was begging Sheldon to make it possible for me to continue doing research in this area. And I said, who's the best person to do research with? And he said, Jeff Greenberg. And I said, great, I'm going to work with Jeff Greenberg. And he said, no, you're not. <laughs> and I said, why not? And he said, well, because Jeff Greenberg is a hard ass and he's not going to take you because you are an undergraduate at a liberal arts institution. And so you've spent four years perfecting the fine art of BSing, but you don't know the first thing about research methods and statistics and one way and two way and all those and those kinds of things. So you don't have the skills and you're not ready to work with Jeff. So I said, okay, well, what should I do? And he said, you should just go work with my buddy, Tom Pasinski at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. So I saved up my money from a coffee shop and I dropped everything and moved across the country uh, with a suitcase and a dream. And um, I didn't even matriculate into the master's program. I just showed up at Tom's door and said, I'm here. And he said, who are you? And I said, I'm Mark. Hopefully you're expecting me. He said, not really. And then he went to his, mail, his email and looked in his deleted folder. And sure enough, there was an email there from Sheldon about me. And so he said, okay, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, what do you want me to do? Um, and so when I was there, I was like, well, I might as well. My, 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 the, my original intention was just to work as an unpaid research assistant for Tom for a year or two as a stepping stone to get to finally work with Jeff. But I enjoyed working with Tom so much. And um, I just enjoyed living in Colorado Springs. And so I matriculated into the program. And then finally, at the end of my master's, I had sort of earned my stripes. And Tom wrote a very nice letter of recommendation. And that allowed me to uh, work with Jeff Greenberg. So that was the sort of the rocky road uh, there. And um, I'm, I'm very grateful to my past self for being willing to take that risk and just move across the country with nothing and so other than a phone number. <laughs> wow. Um, so how'd you end up uh, finding yourself at Kansas? Well, I applied and I got a job, you know. Um, the job market is very tight, as, as folks like you know, as graduate students out there now. And um, fortunately, you know, I things worked out well in Kansas, and uh, I got a, a decent-looking Vita. And that's largely because I had this time beforehand. I didn't. So you know, a lot of people have to do postdocs, and I didn't. And a lot of people say, "Well, you didn't have to do a postdoc," and I said, "No, but I kind of did a pre-doc in a sense because." I did, I spent three years with Tom after undergrad and then um, another five years as a doctorate. And so by the time I made it to Arizona to work with Jeff, I already had a number of data sets in hand and I already made starts on uh, a few projects. So uh, that's just a long way of saying that you know, I, I, um, I was fortunate to have that support from these mentors and that's what allowed me to have Avita that opened some doors uh, right after I graduated in 2007. Um, so I applied to a bunch of places and Kansas um, came forward with, with the best offer. And 
Also, uh, Sheldon Solomon, Tom Pazinski, and Jeff Greenberg were graduate students at the University of Kansas. And so there was a kind of a legacy idea there. There's something appealing about returning to the site of those three. They worked with Jeff Bram, uh, who was around, who passed away uh, around 2009, but um, was around when I first moved. And so it was kind of cool to go back to where my mentors had gone to school. And they convinced me too that Lawrence was a lovely place to live, which it is. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your lab, uh, research lab at Kansas and yeah, uh, yeah. some of the work you do with existential motivation? Yeah. So um, kind of my lab, well, you know, I was so focused on terror management theory and this story I told earlier, it made it sound like I oriented my entire life toward it. And I did for many years. But while working with Jeff, uh, right around 2005, something happened, which is I used to go to this Barnes and Nobles with my then uh, girlfriend, and um, I kept seeing this book called Metaphors We Live By. And um, ever since I was a kid, I've always loved metaphors. And my mom, I used to make fun of my mom because all her advice comes in the form of metaphors. She's always talking like a guru, you know. Um, and so I kind of literally tripped on this book. It was down in the linguistics section, and I read it, and um, uh, it's right up there with Becker's Denial of Death is one of the most eye-opening books I've ever read. And I started to really get fascinated with it. And I started to realize that I had spent so long as a terror management researcher studying the why of meaning-making um, that I was building up the secondary interest in the how of meaning. So for me, terror management theory offered the most compelling answer to the question of why people are so motivated to create a meaningful understanding of the world and their own lives. Um, and yet most of the fun I was having in designing experiments was coming up with cool operational definitions of meaning making, coming up with uh, new ways that people understand um, structure in the world, how they see predictability, how they see patterns, et cetera. And so I really started to become interested in how people grasp abstract concepts that are central to social life and metaphors we live by and conceptual metaphor theory gave me i think the most uh, interesting perspective on that so i actually ended up doing my dissertation on conceptual metaphor theory which is completely tangential to terror management theory but my lab kind of fuses those two marks and you know i kind of i'm dr death in some circles and i'm mr metaphor in other circles um but the way to combine those two and the way to, I, I, the way I think about my lab as a whole is studying both the why and the how of meaning making. And for me, the why, the motives behind meaning making, um, that, that's really addressed by existential psychology. But the, uh, the how, to me also, we learn a lot from linguistics, we learn a lot from sociology, we learn a lot from uh, media studies, et cetera. And so, I kind of wear those two hats and, and um, the students in my lab tend to have projects that are sort of blending those motivational perspectives and then those cognitive, social cognitive perspectives. Uh, do you remember what the book title was in case anyone wants to? Yeah, Metaphors We Live By, by Lakoff and Johnson. Um, and um, they didn't come up with those ideas, but you know, Ernest Becker didn't come up with the denial of death either, but but they were master, but both of them are masterful at uh, synthesizing and distilling those ideas into a very cogent form. Um, so Lakoff and Johnson um, 
you know, put forward this idea that we understand abstract concepts using our knowledge of completely un unrelated concepts and, and that metaphors are not simply figures of speech or um, you know, rap lyrics or, or um, just a linguistic phenomenon, not just a matter of words, that metaphors are actually these tools that we use to make sense of our world, to understand things like emotions and interpersonal dynamics and political issues, et cetera. Um, and so for me, uh, it was a perfect complement to terror management theory, kind of a more um, focused examination of the how, how people create uh, an understanding of the world. And, and, and I've tried to fuse the two a little bit more directly. So for example, I've been looking recently at metaphors that people use to make sense of their life as a whole, particularly interested in the metaphor of a, of a story. Uh, life is a story, also interested in the metaphor of life as a journey, life is sort of a path, moving forward along a path. And I'm fascinated by the possibility that we use our concrete embodied experience with movement uh, as a sort of cognitive template to make sense of very abstract things in our life, like our relationships, our struggles, our challenges, opportunities, et cetera. Uh, for better, for worse. And so um, definitely trying to blend those to see how metaphors are used to make sense of life as a whole and to address big existential questions about where I'm, where I'm going and who I am. And mm -hmm. so. Yeah. But, um, but in terms of what my lab is doing, my lab is very much driven by my students. And so at any point, uh, kind of pursuing what they want to look at. Um, right now, one of my students is looking at our metaphors are used to help women to get more involved with STEM disciplines. So that's part of the metaphor angle. Um, and then another student's looking at parasocial relationships, how we form relationships with online figures, fantasy figures, why people kind of fall in love with characters on TV or Harry Potter or whatever, and sort of looking at whether these parasocial relationships serve an existential function of substituting for uh, are the, the, um, the various ways that our face-to-face -face relationships disappoint us. Uh, we don't have any cool data yet, but that's where we're going. Those are some really cool ideas. Uh, <laughs> that's, that is really interesting. Um, yeah. Do you have, uh, so do you have like a way that the research you've done has impacted the way you live your life, both um, what you do with your lab at Kansas and also just uh, what you've studied through terror management theory? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. And um, I think, you know, I think in many respects, it, does, it hasn't really changed me because ever since I could remember, I was kind of interested in, in why people did what they did. And I always expected that there was an underlying layer of fear there and that some form of repression or anxiety reduction was at the core of human behavior. Even in high school, I was obsessed with, you know, Freud and Nietzsche's views that were basically um, putting forward the idea of repression and, and unconscious fears. Um, so there's always, I've always had a sort of a latent cynicism about human beings and the motives behind their behavior. And I don't think studying that has changed me much. Um, but one of the, I think, nice, byproducts of studying term management theory and existential motivation in general is that it has made me a little bit more tolerant 
of um, others because, I mean, the cynicism is obvious, right? We, based on these existential perspectives, we start to look at the people's behavior through the lens of anxiety management. And we start to realize that a lot of times people are doing things in order to um, keep their fears and insecurities at bay. And that's kind of annoying. But at the same time, you also realize that each individual has what Becker called a character armor. Each individual has a unique way of just feeling safe in the world, feeling valuable and negotiating what could otherwise be a terrifying uh, existence. And when you think of it that way, you realize that each person's just struggling to cope with the same threat that I'm struggling to cope with. And their style might be annoying, but it's their style. Uh, and that we're all in the same boat, essentially. We're all struggling uh, to uh, deal with our underlying fears and insecurities. And so when you see all of us as basically driven by the same motive, I think it's a, um, it's a fast track to tolerance. I think it helps you realize that other people's quirks and um, harmful behavior, although not excusable, is, is, is ultimately their way of addressing the same problem you're trying to address. And so it just kind of helps you feel like you're all in the same boat. Uh, I even did a study of uh, trying to test this back when I was uh, in grad school. I tried to see whether actually teaching participants about care management theory would make them more tolerant of others. And so I gave them a little essay and everything. And the findings were very much inconclusive, but um, that was at least the personal effect that it had on me was um, just help me see other people's other other behaviors that were annoying in a new light. <laughs> um, but uh, but you know clearly existential psychology has that kind of dark outlook on people, and I think that's always been me. I've just always been attracted to that. So I think um, our last question for the day. Um, so I know I know personally when I like read all the readings that Lindsay's been giving me and I like start to think about my own death I can get really like anxious and start to want to do things that aren't read about death so I wanted to know if you have any comfort activities or go-to shows or movies that you like to just jump back on whenever it comes too much yeah I definitely um I definitely love movies and definitely have a lot of comfort things I really wish I could say I'm above all that but I'm not um probably my most the most reliable comfort activity I have is doodling. I've been doodling since I was could hold a pen, and um, I've just I'm known as a as, as a mad doodler, just doodling on everything. I'm in talks. I'm doodling. Sometimes I have when someone comes to Kansas to give a talk, I usually go up to them before the talk and I say, "Look, I'm going to be sitting up front. You're going to see me doodling. That doesn't mean I'm not paying attention. <laughs> I have to like apologize beforehand." So um, I love drawing, I love doodling. Um, and uh, for me, it's just a way of kind of um, draining off excess anxious energy. And I do end up exploring a lot of dark themes in my drawings and kind of, you know, screaming, melting skulls and whatnot, fleshy, freaky faces. Um, but I also bring, it also helps me kind of bring a sense of humor to the whole thing, you know, I can kind of laugh. You often hear me laughing. My wife makes fun of me because she'll I'll be upstairs drawing and I'll just start laughing to myself like a maniacal dude. And um, that's just kind of my way of um, 
getting off that excess energy. You know, if I didn't go into social psych, I probably would have been a cartoonist drawing really dark cartoons. So, um, yeah, I doodle and um, make really disgusting faces and then laugh at them. It's kind of my way of uh, objectifying death and then laughing in the face of it, you know. Do you have any uh, favorite artists that you like to model your style after? Yeah, uh, Francis Bacon is is definitely up there. Uh, Jean-Michael Basquiat is up there, uh, Dali. But um, my style most resembles Francis Bacon. I'm kind of a Francis Bacon ripoff. And um, yeah, that, he was just masterful at capturing agony and um, and disgust and contempt in, in his, his figures. And so um, for me, it's kind of... Uh, it helps to uh, externalize all that anxiety and all that dread into a screaming face or something. <laughs> I also draw like bunnies and shit, you know, <laughs> but it's not all that, but yeah, that's kind of my comfort activity is to, is, is to like make light of, of death as much as I can and, and make light of other existential concerns like loss of control and 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 envy and, and other things like that isolation so well i want to thank you for uh joining us today on the oh, podcast sure. a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. yeah I, I really loved all your answers and um i hope one day to see some of those doodles that's <laughs> I, I i'm interested <laughs> to see what you're drawing um but with that uh Thank you all for uh, joining us today to listen in our conversation. And I hope uh, you, the audience, enjoyed the episode. So we'll see you all next time. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.